Good morning. We welcome each of you. I've got my Bible open to the book of Acts. And I encourage you to get your Bible open there or your phone, your tablet, your scroll, whatever you use. We're going to be marching through the book of Acts here in just a little bit. And we are delighted you could be with us this morning. It's a good day to be together. Doesn't matter what the weather is outside. It's a good day when we come together in the presence of God. And we've done that this day. So, so good to be back with you. I was in sunny Phoenix last week. It was sunny and hot. And I come back here and it's gray and cold. But that's okay. That's okay. We're with the Monta Vista Church. Really good church here. I've been there multiple times. We had day classes and preaching every night. We had the baptism. Spent a couple hours with their shepherds. Talked to them about shepherding concepts. Spent a little bit of time with their preacher. And just a wonderful, wonderful church. Good to be there. They announced on the last night that my son Jordan's going to be there next year in a meeting. And I said, well, you'll forget who I am once he comes. But that's okay. We're so glad to be there and help them out. One of my favorite movies when I was growing up was Wizard of Oz. Now, back then, you young people won't appreciate this, but back then, it came on once a year. And you had to watch it once a year. Because if you missed it, you missed it. Well, why didn't you record it? We couldn't record things back then. Well, why didn't you get the DVD? There was no DVDs back then. Either you watched it or you missed it. And I was always amazed about Dorothy. Lived in black and white Kansas and went to the colorful land of Oz. And she saw all kinds of things. She saw munchkins and colored horses and became a friend with a, a scarecrow and a lion. And then as the movie ends, she's back in black and white Kansas. Back in her bed. My, her family's around her. And she makes this proclamation that if I ever desire to go exploring again, I won't go any farther than my own backyard. She saw enough. Later on, there was another movie that came out by Kevin Costner. And he built a baseball field in a little Iowa place. And the theme line that came out of that movie is, if you build it, they will come. And I want you to understand, neither one of these movie ideas is biblical to what God wants us to do. God doesn't want us as a church to stay put. That was Dorothy's idea. I'm going to stay put in my backyard from here on because who knows where I'm going to be blown off to next time. And the Kevin Costner idea, if we build it, they will come. That's not the biblical concept. Our Lord said in the book of Acts, and at the end of the Gospels, in both Matthew and in Mark, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. God wants us to go. And so when we go to the book of Acts in chapter 1, the last words Jesus said to his apostles before he ascended to heaven, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. What Jesus was illustrating here is how that gospel message was to spread. It was to spread into parts that was far away. It was to reach the ends of the earth. Now, if you got your Bible, let's just show you this as we start marching through the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8, if you will. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement putting him to death. That was Stephen from chapter 7. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, 
except the apostles. We get down to verse 5 of Acts 8. It says, And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. We jump now to verse 27. There we find Philip meeting someone from Ethiopia. We call him the Ethiopian eunuch. What does he do? He preaches him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jump ahead now to chapter 11. Keep flowing with me on this. Chapter 11, look at verse 19. So those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose in connection with Stephen, that's Acts 8, we just read that, made their way to Phoenicia, Cyrus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one but to Jews alone. Then we go to chapter 14 of Acts. Acts 14, verse 1. It came about in Iconium. They entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and there they began preaching. We look in verse 8 of chapter 14. And at Lystra, again, they're preaching the gospel. Jump ahead now to chapter 16, verse 2. It says, it talks about Lystra and Iconium there. Verse 12 of chapter 16. From there we went to Philippi, which is in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. From there we go to chapter 17, verse 1. Now they traveled through Amphilius and to Apollonium. They came to Thessalonica, a synagogue of the Jews. We look at verse 16 of that same chapter. It says, Paul goes to Athens. Then we go to chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, he goes to Corinth. Then we go to chapter 19, verse 1. And then chapter 19, verse 1, while he's at Corinth, he, he goes through the upper country to Ephesus. When we jump to the very last chapter, chapter 28 of the book of Acts, and we look at verse 26, and Paul is in the city and the place of Rome. Legend has it that Thomas went to India. Matthew went to Ethiopia. The point of all this is God did not intend the gospel to stay in Jerusalem. God's idea was not stay put. We're going to do the Wizard of Oz complex. We're going to stay in our own backyard, and that's as far as it's going to go. Nor did he have the complex of Kevin Costner, the idea that we're going to build a big, a big building here, and everyone from the world is going to come to us. We are going to go to where they are. We're scattering throughout the world. That was God's plan. Jason started a series for us last week. This is going to walk us through till parts of December. We want to talk about the church we read about in the Bible. How does it function? How does it do its work? How do we see what God's way is? And then we're going to be tying this in. I'll mention this in just a minute. We're going to be tying this into our Sunday evening sermons as well. Sunday evening, starting tonight, we're going to have a chair series where we take some of the thoughts from today's lesson, and we're going to talk about a little bit more and stretch it out. But today, we're going to talk about lessons from American restoration history. That's a picture of the Cane Ridge building. I was there in October and gave two lessons there. Built in 1791. It has an amazing story as we think about this. But when we think about the gospel, we think about starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. How did it come to America? How did it come to Indiana? What's that story? I want to tell you that today. And we're going to talk about some things you need to know. But before the New Testament was even finished, much of what God was teaching in his gospel and his plan was, taking, was changing. And we see three, three changes that took place. First of all, there's a departure from the truth. You got your New Testaments? Let's run through these verses. Turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Before the ink had dried on the New Testament, 
people were leaving God's message. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul would say in verse 3, verse 4, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Even before the Bible was finished, God's telling them there's going to be people, people just like you, who said, you know what? Done with this stuff. Don't want this. I want somebody to make me laugh. I want somebody who says, you're okay. I want somebody who says, it really doesn't matter what you do. Let's just hold hands and dance. That's what they were seeing. Now go on in your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. Notice how these departures are mentioned. Titus chapter 1, verse 10, verse 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. There are folks out there, he says, who are changing God's message. Once again, in your Bible, look in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says, but false prophets rose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destructions upon themselves. And then in the book of Revelation, if you turn there with me, the book of Revelation in chapter 2, and in verse 14, verse 15, it says, but I have a few things against you, because you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So before the New Testament was finished, there were those who were departing from the truth. There were those who were developing an organization larger than the local church. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And there were those who were dethroning God's word. And what happened was, especially throughout Europe, the religion, because of the king, became the national religion. And so whatever the king believed, that was the national religion. And if you didn't go along with the king's religion, you were persecuted. And so what we have is a corrupt, powerful, oppressive, and national religion. They even use torture and death to suppress people. If you don't believe in me, we're going to silence you. And from that sprang an organization, not what we read about in the New Testament, a big hierarchy, controlling nations, moving politicians, big, powerful type of thing. They were deciding who would go to heaven. They were deciding what you would believe. They were deciding truth. So much of this is that in the year 1229, Catholic Church put out a list of books that was forbidden to read. If you had one of these books, you were condemned and you were not going to heaven. On that list was the Bible. Now, in our times today, we cannot imagine that. But that's the way it was. In the 1500s, William Tyndale was burned alive at the stake for simply taking the Bible and translating it into the language of the people, the English language. And so groups like the Puritans, fled different places throughout Europe because they, let, they left one nation where that 
religion was oppressive to another nation where it's oppressive. They went to Holland and eventually they came to America. And coming to America, what they had as their faith and their backbone is we need a place where you can worship however you want to worship. There will be no national religion. And building our constitution, this idea is the freedom of religion. We can worship any way we want. And so right around the time of the U.S. Constitution being written in the 1700s, there's a period of time we call the Great Awakening. There's a lot of interest in religion. People were getting back to things. But that simply didn't last. A historian by the name of De Groot says, the decades following the war for independence had left the young nation cold to religion. The New England Great Awakening died before the revolution. Two of the last decades of the 18th century were the darkest period of spiritually and morally in the history of American Christianity. For instance, the Methodist Church at this time period was losing 4,000 people every year. It said in Kentucky in 1790, one in 20 people you meet was a Baptist. Ten years later is one in 43. And what this illustrated was just a decline in interest of religion. But something happened. What happened was there was a renewed interest. And that interest wasn't in what we've always done. It's why can't we just be New Testament Christians? Why can't we just follow the Bible? And so all over the early part of our country, there were people like James O'Kelly in Virginia who was a Methodist. Abner Jones up in New York. We have Barton W. Stone in Kentucky where the great Cane Ridge revival was. He was a Presbyterian. We had the Campbells, Thomas and his son Alexander, there in Pennsylvania. And then we had John Mulkey, also in Kentucky. These men had no contact with each other. It was not like they had the internet and say, hey, I'm preaching on this week, why are you preaching on? They didn't, have any, they didn't even know each other. But one by one for different reasons. For Campbell, it was the birth of his baby. He was a Presbyterian, his baby was born, and you're supposed to baptize your babies. He started looking at his Bible and said, you know what? I don't see any baby's Bible being baptized here. I'm thinking about things. For Stone in, K in Kentucky, he came from Carolina, and he wanted to be a Presbyterian preacher. And they said, you must go along with a Presbyterian doctrine. He started reading this. He says, I go along with it as long as it goes along with the Bible. That got him in trouble. And so one by one, all these men just started looking in their Bibles, different reasons, different causes, and it's very similar to what we read about in the book of Nehemiah. Because there in Nehemiah it says they opened the book in the front of the people. They weren't keeping this book closed. They weren't saying, you can't have this Bible. We want you to have this Bible. And then they read this book in front of the people. And then they explained this book to the people. And they made sense and the people understood what was taking place. What happened, and this is that inside that King Ridge building, Rather than having professional preachers coming from the East Coast, they had farmers rising up among themselves. They'd plow the fields in the daytimes, and in the nighttimes, they were preaching. And they just opened that Bible and just started preaching it. And what they did is they started rejecting all names. We're not going to be this kind of Christian, that kind of Christian, this label and that label. We're just going to be what we read about in the Bible, nothing else. And then they rejected all the creeds that they'd been following. If it was less than the Bible, it's too little. If it's more than the Bible, it's too much. If it's the same as the Bible, it's not necessary. Those are the conclusions they came to. 
They denied a hierarchy system, a big system where someone is above someone else. And we'll mention that in just a minute. And then they sought to restore this divine pattern for worship, for salvation, for organization. Now, I want, I want us to just, just to hit the pause for a moment. For you who are 30 and under, we take this for granted. We come into the church building, it says Church of Christ. You know we're going to open the Bible. You know how it's going to be. We go back a period in our time and our history, and it wasn't that way. We take some things for granted here that we need to see how it came about. So over by Salem, Indiana, there's a man by the name of John Wright. And this is something he said. He says, so it was in southern Indiana, formerly we had regular Baptists and separate Baptists and German or Dunkard Baptists, free will Baptists, Christian Connection or New Lights. These societies in some respects were like the Jews and Samaritans of old. But the old gospel was preached among these warring sects with great power and success. Much of the partyism that existed was removed. Much of the party names were done away. Formerly, we all had in our respective churches much that was purely human. But now in the church of God, we have no need for the morning bench, the anxious seat, or any other institution of man's device. But in the church is the place where the solemn feast of the Lord's body is celebrated and sincere worship is offered to the Father in spirit and in truth. And I came in out of this was a, was a spirit. Where the Bible speaks, that's where we're going to speak. And when the Bible doesn't say anything, we're not going to say anything. And all across the Midwest, places like Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, Virginia, it just came like a wildfire. And what we see is thousands and thousands were baptized. Whole churches were flipping over. They were changing the sign and just calling themselves disciples or Christians or Church of Christ because that's what the concept they found in the Bible. And that's what they see. Now, from this, and that was about the fast restoration history I could ever give you, three lessons, and this is where I want to drive at today, three lessons out of this time period. Number one, the church you read about in the Bible is different, unique, and unlike any other church. Get this. I don't like things here. I can go next door. Next door is not in your Bible. I'm going to be honest. It's not in your Bible. My mama goes over to this church over yonder. If it's not a New Testament church, it's not right. We're not going down the street and the line at McDonald's is so long, I'll just go across the street to Burger King because they're all the same. We're not the same when it comes to the Lord's church. We need to understand that and appreciate that. What makes it different, number one, is divine in origin. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, upon this rock, I will build my church. My church is saved people in Jesus Christ. Only God can build a church. I cannot save you. I cannot get you to heaven. Only God can. And when somebody comes along and traces the history of a church, and they find that that church started in the 1600s, and in the 1500s that church never existed, that is the wrong starting point. It starts in the New Testament. Secondly, it's divine in name. Romans 16, 16 says, the churches of Christ salute you. Your name is important. When you go somewhere and someone mispronounces your name, that is something you correct them on because it's important. My daughter Sarah, when she was a little girl, everywhere we went, she'd say, my name is Sarah with an H. And I'd say, my name is Roger with an R. You know, we care how our name is pronounced. We care how our name is spelled. 
And so when we think about this body, this is the body of Jesus. It honors Jesus. It carries the name of Jesus. That is important. And when I go down the road, I worship about the what's happening now, church. Who's that honoring? What's happening now? I need to honor God. Divine and organization. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul says he wrote this letter of Philippi, uh, to Philippi, to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. That's how a church is organized. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And then divine and function. Divine and function. Now, if you wanted to be a Mormon, this will not make you a Mormon. You cannot be a Mormon doing this. You have to take this and this. Because this alone will not make you a Mormon. Mormon doctrine, Mormon organization, Mormon concepts are not found in here. You have to add this. But if I have this, will this make me a Methodist? No. I have to put this down, and I have to pick up the Methodist discipline. Now, it's real important which one you get. This Methodist discipline was written in 1902. This one is more modern. This one would not allow women preachers in the Methodist church. This one would not allow lesbian preachers in the Methodist church. This one will. It has changed. But guess what? This won't make you a Mormon. But guess what? This won't make you a Methodist. Because these things aren't in here. You have to have this. If I wanted to be a Lutheran, I'd have to have the Lutheran catechism. Because this alone won't make me a Lutheran. I'd have to add these two. If I wanted to be a Presbyterian, I'd have to add the Presbyterian to this. Because this alone won't make me a Presbyterian. If I wanted to be a Baptist, I'd have to add the Baptist manual. Well, I got this. Let me read you a page here. Page 22. It is most likely that in the apostolic age, when there was but one Lord, one faith, one baptism, no different denominations existed, the baptism of a convert by that very act constituted him a member of the church. And at once endowed him with all the rights and privileges of full membership. In that sense, baptism was the door into the church. Now, it is different. Who made it different? They did. You see what I'm saying? So here's a group of people came to America, and they were all these. And they fussed with each other. The Baptists would fuss with the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians would fuss with the Methodists. And they all fuss and fuss and fuss. They say, why can't we get rid of all that stuff and just do this? Nothing but this. If it's in here, we're doing it. If it's not in here, we're not. What, what are we going to call ourselves? Well, what do they call themselves? That's what we're going to call themselves. What are we going to call the church? What did they call the church back then? How do they worship? How do they worship? How are they going to get saved? How do they get saved? How do they do the Lord's Supper? How do they do the Lord's Supper? And pretty soon that movement caught on. Now, we talk about this concept of restoration. What does restoration really mean? Imagine we're out here one day and we find that old clunker. And somebody just wants it out of his garage. Steve over here, I've seen why he does the cars. I've never, you've never seen a car like what Steve does. He takes it down to it's just a shell. And so we could do that, or we could do that. Now, Ron Pegg would do the bottom one. And the bottom one's cool. The bottom one, you're going to get the girls looking at you. The bottom one's fast. 
And when it comes to cars, it doesn't matter. But when it comes to Bible principle, the idea is what God did as original cannot be improved upon. We must go backwards and restore. That's the idea of restoration, going back and restoring. So notice some Bible verses that say that. In the book of 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Why does that matter? Because it started first in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and what they said is what they were doing, y'all did over here. You're restoring. Okay? Over here in the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same. You see that? It's not changing it. It's not making it different. We're going backwards to that same concept over and over again. Notice this principle when it comes to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord, he says, that which I also delivered to you. I got it from Jesus, I give it to you. I don't change it, I don't do anything with it other than I deliver it. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, and in verse 9, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, why does this matter? It matters because we have a generation today, as we've had every time, there's always a new generation that thinks, well, this is so old-fashioned. Why can't we do this? Church would be so cool if Gary Gephardt would go up and down the aisles with cotton candy. That would be so cool. And if we could get Mike over here doing something over here and get this guy over here doing that, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it would. But is it biblical? Is that the way they did it? Are we taking that old car and making it a hot rod? Or are we going back the way it originally was? And so the second lesson we learned from restoration history is that there was an understanding that the church God created was equipped and sufficient to do what it's supposed to do. It was able to do what God wanted to do. And I, th I think this is an eternal principle. Whatever God made, it was able to do what God said. God didn't say lift this rock and it's this rock is big this building. Well, I can't do that. Whatever God tells us to do, we can do. It begins first with the Garden of Eden. What was Adam supposed to do? Take care of the garden, wasn't he? Well, I need a hoe. I'm going to have to leave the garden and go over here to Walmart and get me a hoe. And I'm going to have to have some seeds, so I'm going to go over here to the nursery and get some seeds. Everything Adam needed was in that garden. It was sufficient. It was equipped for his survival. The same thing is true of the word of God. Let's throw a couple of verses on this just for you to see this. In the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice verse 16, verse 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, verse 17. There, the apostle says it this way. He says, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Yeah, but, but don't, I, don't I need one of these books here? I'm not sure which one I'm going to be. I might be the Mormon. I might be the Methodist. I might be the Baptist. Don't I need some of these? No. No, you don't. No, you don't. Second Peter, chapter 1. Look at verse 3. It says, seeing as divine power, 2 Peter 1, 3, 
has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. You want to know what you have to have to get to heaven? Right here. Nothing else. Well, well, what about these other things? Well, maybe those other things we shouldn't be doing because maybe they're not in here. Well, what about this and that? Well, maybe this and that's not in the Bible. Maybe we should lay that down. Everything you need, everything God wants us to do is found in the Bible. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, if you will. Ephesians 4. Look at verse 11. Now we talk specifically about the church. And Ephesians 4, verse 11 he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Stop there. What are those? They're all different. The apostle's not a prophet. A prophet's not an evangelist. Those are all teaching functions. That's how going to all the world. He didn't say go into all the world and entice people with food. Come on. Come with me. I'm going to feed you, and then I'm going to teach you. Come over here. We got donkey rides for a nickel. Come ride my donkey. Let's go to church. He didn't say, here's a signed picture of the Apostle Paul. Would you like to have one of those? Come with me to church. They didn't do those gimmicks. That's at the circus. What they did was preach the gospel. And what did Paul, what did God do to equip that church? He gave teachers. All of them are teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints... For the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see that? And so when we think about this, this is the concept. The church is capable of doing what God expects us to do. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. When we come to the New Testament, we talk about autonomous churches. And that's what Jason and I are going to talk about tonight. really hope you come back tonight to hear us talk about autonomy. What does that mean? We understand it when it comes to franchises. This is the denominational picture. For every one of these here, you can find an earthly headquarters somewhere. An earthly headquarters, and that headquarters decides in this body of believers, this is what we're going to do. You go over to McDonald's, and you stand in line, and you say, you know what? I would like a lobster tail with a little hot butter sauce. I can dip it in there. McDonald's will say, we don't do that. How come? Because our corporate headquarters tells us we're doing burgers and chickens and fries and that's it. Who determines that? The corporate headquarters. That's the concept of a denomination. Money flows everywhere. People flow everywhere. It's a big franchise. When it comes to what we read about in the Bible, every church is separate. It's autonomous. So who is over, putting the cards on the table here, who is over the Charlestown Road Church of Christ? Jesus. Who tells us what to do? Jesus. Who decides who will preach here? The shepherds who are given the task of overseeing this. Who decides how long the preacher will be here? The shepherds. Don't they, don't they get moved around? Who decides how much to pay those preachers? The shepherds. Everything's independent. But you know what? Just last week I was in Phoenix. At Church of Christ. Buildings different, faces are different, but it looks kind of the same. Isn't there someone telling us what to do? There is. Y'all know I love Monopoly. I got a Monopoly game on my tablet, play it every day. I love Monopoly. Okay? So, we're gonna play the game of Monopoly. Old fashioned. We're not gonna play the NASCAR, the football time. We're gonna play old fashioned, plain Jane Monopoly. 
Somebody in Africa is going to do the same thing. Somebody in London is doing the same thing. We don't know each other. But we're going by the same rules. Guess what? The game will look the same. Why? Because we're following the same rule book. Now, we start making changes here and there, and all of a sudden it doesn't look the same. That's where all this comes about. They start making little changes here. Wouldn't it be better to do this? What's wrong with doing this? Why can't we do this? If it's not in here, you got to have another book. And so we talk about the church. It is separate. It is independent. It is autonomous. And we'll stretch that out a little bit more this evening as we talk about that. Then... We see and appreciate the first Christians were content with God's way. God had delivered it. It had been preached everywhere. They understood if it came from God, it worked. They knew that it was perfect and could not be improved upon. They realized if you change it, it's no longer be the way the Lord made it. The mechanism for growth was teaching the word of God. Each generation had to be taught these things. And they had to understand that. And so the direction we read about in our Bible is not forward, but backwards. As Jeremiah chapter 6 would say, stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what makes the New Testament church unique, is that we're going backwards, looking to the ancient way to do the things that God wants us to do. I went in with two quotations here. First one is from our own Ron Frazier. Ron sent me some stuff before I did my restoration lesson at Cane Ridge. And he had some things that's worth listening to. He says, the restoration movement is alive and well. Hundreds of intelligent, faithful, godly leaders preserve and preach New Testament Christianity. While nothing could be clear that our churches need a revival, it is not given that we cry out for redefinition. I don't trust these modern claritans who of late have been reading over the grave of the old brotherhood. I fear that they want the restoration movement to be certified dead so they can apply for the commission to resurrect it in their own progressive and flawed vision. We may have lost our nerve, but we have not lost our reason for being. And then a preacher who has little or no experience in strong doctrine has no right to declare the restoration movement isn't working and call for a new progressive plan. And to that I'd say, well said. And then my dear friend Ed Harrell, who died earlier this year, wrote this. He said, I am a restorer. Unbowed, undaunted, extremist, eccentric, a peer in peace in the Disciples of Christ movement that grows increasingly uncomfortable with the intellectual, social, and psychological pitfalls of restoring New Testament Christianity. The centerpiece of my intellectual universe is biblical primitivism. A search for the first pure truths and ordinances. I am seeking that elusive, pristine image of Christianity as it came from the mind of God. You say it's not there. It is an illusion. I've decided to seek it anyway. We live in a world of illusions. You say that I, I cannot find it because I carry on my back the baggage of my own past, of the culture which I live in, of the language with which I think. Self-consciously and as much self-awareness as possible, I've decided to try. You say, I shall fail and be disillusioned. So far, I have not. In a sense, all restorers are seekers, through some, though sometimes we may think otherwise. Yet I shall not be overcome with cynicism 
and depressing because of all the truths that are not readily apparent. But rather, I am joyously and thankful that we've come this far by faith. To be a restorer has always meant to be an explorer first in search of Zion. Bound to group in our own human and cultural maze, never finishing our task, but ever learning through struggle and commitment to the truth. But I have never been alone. God has provided others of like mind to be my fellow travelers. I am rigorous in this journey. I am set on this journey. But I am extensively also aware of others. The search has served me well. And should you come look for me, you'll find me a bit further down the road on the same road going back to Jerusalem. That's what this church is all about. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we want you to understand what we're about. Why is it we use so much Bible here? Because of our core beliefs. Our beliefs that we are to be the church that we read about in the Bible. Why is it that if you have a question, we're going to go to the Bible to find that answer? Because that is in the DNA of this congregation. And we need to understand as you visit with us, if you're a friend among us, and you may say, well, I see no difference when this church and that church, shame on us, because there should be a difference. We're pleading to go backwards to God. We're serious about what we read about in the Bible. We're interested in doing things God's way and only God's way. We don't care about the writings of men. We don't care about the creeds of society. We don't care what culture is saying. Culture is going one direction. We're going the other direction. We're headed back to Jerusalem. Back to that first gospel that was preached in Acts chapter 2. That's in our heart and that's in our mode. So as we continue this series, layer after layer, week after week, we're going to start talking about more of these things. How was it that first church, those early Christians, took care of needy people? All around us as we come into the Christmas season, what about helping the homeless? What about ringing the red bell? What about this and what about that? How come we don't do some of those things? Let's go back to that restoration concept. What did they do back then? How is it that we're supposed to worship? Let's go back and see what they did. How is it we're to be organized? Let's go back and see that. What about evangelism? How do we get the, the word of God out there? What about missions? Are you all for missions? Years ago, I was in a bookstore, a religious bookstore. And that's just in my blood. I love religious bookstores. And I was looking at a whole bunch of books. And this young guy, 20-something, cut, cut right in front of me, which I thought was kind of rude. Cut right in front of me, and you just tell he was looking for something. And I said, what are you looking for, boy? I didn't say boy. I didn't say that. And he said, I'm looking for a book on puppets. I said, this is a religious bookstore. He said, I am a puppet minister. And I said, excuse me? I didn't get that. He said, I am a puppet minister. And today in our times, you take any word, you can put minister behind that. I am a cooking minister. I have a bike ministry. I have this ministry, that ministry. I have an apartment ministry, this ministry, that ministry. And the church has to fund it. We go overseas and we dig ditches. We build houses and we do all that. That's my mission work. What did they do when they went to all the world? They preached Jesus. And if our young people want to go overseas and build somebody a house, go for it. But the church isn't going to pay for it because that's not what we see in our Bible. If you want to go over there and dig somebody a well, go for it. If you want to come to Roger's backyard and rake leaves, please come go for it. But don't call that a ministry. And don't expect the church to pay for it. Because when you go back to the old, old way, what did Paul do when he went to place to place? 
set up a little place and, and cook some food and then say, hey, come, come with me. I'm with. No. What did he do? Is he preached and he preached and he preached and he preached. That's the New Testament pattern. We need to see that in a lot of ways, when moderns look at the church today, it's kind of like that old Superman. Remember how Superman began up in the sky? The bird, it's the plane. Superman, is it a school? Is it a church? Is it a hospital? Is it a homeless shelter? Is it a place to take my dog? I don't know. When I read my Bible, they knew what church was. Something that followed Jesus Christ. It was people who followed Jesus Christ. That's what we're set on here. Now, if you're looking for 32 flavors, you're not going to find it here. We have one flavor, the Bible flavor. If you're looking for doing your own thing your own way, you're not going to find it here because we do it the Bible way. And that's the concept we need to see and appreciate, to understand that this is given for a reason. It's a pattern, and that's what we're trying to follow. So, enough of me right now. So, if you're not a Christian, you're going to become a Christian one way, this way. No other way. You're going to do it the way they did it in Acts 2, in Acts 6, Acts 8, all the way through. What did they do? They heard this message, repented of their sins. Buried in water or immersed for baptism, for remission of their sins, and they walked with Jesus. They found others in the community who were like believers, and they got together, and they worshiped God. They became God's family, and they pulled their money and their voices and their efforts, and in that community, they spread the gospel of Jesus. We call that a local congregation. That's what you read about in your Bible. That's what we're interested in. If you're interested in that, we're interested in you. If we can help you in any way, why don't you come now as we stand.